folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. I hope your holidays weren't ho, ho, ho horrible. I hope you had a good time at Christmas. I hope that you didn't drink too much eggnog. I hope you got everything that you wanted for Christmas. And if you didn't celebrate Christmas, I hope that was good for you as well. We have a couple of little presents for you to uh, keep things going, keep the holiday spirit and the momentum of all that going through into the new year. Uh, a couple of interviews I wanted to share with you. Atlantic Monthly called David Thompson probably the greatest living film critic and historian. Uh, they said that he writes the most fun and enthralling prose about the movies uh, since Pauline Kael. Uh, John Banville called him the greatest living writer on movies. I spoke with him at the House of Krauss uh, about his new book, How to Watch a Movie. Um, this book will give you sort of insight into the film critic's brain. Uh, it's his 30th or 40th book or something like that. The guy is a machine. He's also a really engaging conversationalist. So we'll get to him in just a minute. The other guest we have coming by is Adam McKay. Adam McKay used to be a writer for Saturday Night Live. Uh, he directed uh, Step Brothers, who's worked with Will Ferrell frequently. He's now made a movie called The Big Short. The Big Short is a fascinating look at what happened during the days leading up to the housing bubble that burst in 2007, 2008. Uh, it is a funny movie, but it's an insightful movie. It is a dramatic film. Uh, it's a movie that's going to make you think, but most of all, it is a movie I think that you'll walk away from going, holy crap, that housing bubble thing could happen again unless we're very, very careful. Uh, so let's start with Adam McKay, and then we'll get to David Thompson a little bit later on. But here's Adam McKay talking about The Big Short. I think when people first connected your name to this material, they said, what's the guy that made, you know, Anchorman and those films doing making this film? I see a through line. I see Anchorman being a, a, a satire about news. I see Step Brothers being about consumerism, all that. So is this just a more straightforward kind of look at this than maybe you've done in the past? I think so. You know, I think with all of our comedies, you're correct. We always have a little bit of a point of view in there that we're kind of playing with as silly and as absurdist as the movies are. And when I read this book, I, I just kind of did everything I wanted to see in a movie. I mean, it was funny. It was tragic. The characters were amazing. It was incredibly relevant. Um, yeah, I just never read a book like it. So the, these were all interests I had on the outside. Some of them would show up in our comedies, but I just never read a book this entertaining yet this informative, yet this tragic. Um, so I think it was a case of just I ran into one of like the great books of the last 20 years that kind of shows what's going on in our modern world. But the tricky bit here is to take incredibly complex financial data, which even the bankers don't really seem to understand. A lot of them don't, yeah. And, and make the audience understand it while still telling a story, making us laugh occasionally, and keeping the, the story moving forward. Uh, that would be the part of the movie that I think some uh, people would say, why did you do that? Uh, for us, we felt like it was really important. We wanted to be the first Wall Street movie that really took you behind the curtain, that really says, okay, all these confusing terms you hear, all these ways that the banks make you feel stupid or bored, 
It's actually not that hard. And if the guy who did Step Brothers can understand it, I think you can understand it too. So that was the bold leap we took. It would have been very easy to just do this character story to just show these guys being affected by it. But I really wanted this thing to bridge a gap. I think there's too much stuff in our society where people just think, ah, banking, it's boring, I don't get it. Or politics, who cares? And especially in the States, we get a lot of that. And the truth is, this stuff is exciting. I mean, this stuff is the language of power. And once you hook on it, it's like, it gets addictive. Like, I started reading all kinds of books and interviewing different people. And, and you start realizing that economics and finance, they, it is politics, that there's really no difference between them. And your favorite sports team is affected by politics. Your kid's going to college, your house, your dental bills. I mean, it's everything. But that's what lies at the root of all the problems, though. Yes. Right? Well, you mean the, in the, in, the connection between all of that. In the sense that people don't understand these mm-hmm. dynamics, so they get taken advantage of? Yeah. Absolutely. And that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to show that this thing that half of Wall Street doesn't understand, these derivatives, mortgage-backed securities, they're actually pretty easy. Mm-hmm. They bundled a bunch of mortgages. They sold them. They made a ton of money. They ran out of good mortgages, so they put crappy mortgages in and then coerced the ratings agencies to give them AAA. That's it. That's the whole story. So the movie focuses really on four people who are Wall Street, but just slightly outside of Wall Street, uh, who see this crash coming. They understand it. They see it in advance. Are they heroes or not? Because they were betting against the American dream, really, in some ways. Yes. So were they opportunists or were they they heroes? I think for half the movie, they're heroes. I think for half the movies, they're trying to kick the big banks in the teeth. They saw that the big banks were wrong. They were doing their job. The market is supposed to work where you see a bad investment, you do the counterinvestment. And I think about 60% of the movie, they realize it was so much bigger than what they realized. And I always compare it to like a tsunami coming. And these were the guys running around telling the villagers, get up in the hills, get up in the hills. And everyone got up in the hills. And then they realized the tsunami was a thousand times bigger than they thought. And it swamped the hills. So that's what's kind of heartbreaking about it. These guys were doing the right thing. They were doing their job. In the end, it was so big and the corruption was so much larger than they imagined. And you meet these real guys to this day and they still have a thousand yard stare. They're still shocked by what they found. Is this a slice of history? Is it a cautionary tale? Or is it both? Uh, I'd say it's right now. I'd say it's – this is a story that is alive right now. Uh, it's not a historical you know, snapshot. All the effects of this collapse are still completely in play. If you look at the euro, you look at Greece, you look at what happened to Spain, you look at our debt on our books that just really got taken off the bank's books and put on our government's books – uh, you're seeing, you know, an asset bubble. You're seeing uh, debt is still growing higher than GDP. All these same questions are still in play. And they fixed a few things, but they didn't fix the main weight-bearing beams that caused this this problem. So, no, this is an active story right this second. And, and that's one of the other main reasons we made this movie is we wanted people to not understand that. Like, this isn't over. That's Adam McKay on The Big Short. It's a film that stars Brad Pitt and Ryan Gosling and Christian Bale, high-level, big A-lister kind of cast. But beyond all that stuff, Steve Carell's in there as well. Beyond all that stuff, go see this movie because it is an engagingly made film that will really help you understand something from our very recent past that a lot of people just simply don't understand. They don't get how this was allowed to happen. Well, the big short will tell you how the housing bubble burst. David Thompson had talked about him a little bit earlier. 
uh, in the podcast. He is someone uh, who has long been a hero of mine just because he watches movies and processes movies in a slightly different way than almost anybody else on the planet. Uh, I talked to him about a lot of things, but first of all, I wanted to find out what it was that made him fall in love with movies. Here's that conversation. I want to know where it all began for you. There's a story about you, four years old, and Laurence Olivier. Is it's that all, where it began? I think so. I cannot exactly remember whether the first film I saw was Henry V, mm -hmm. Olivier's Henry V, or a Lassie film, where Lassie got pursued by the Gestapo in snowy landscapes. Right. I, I just don't know which came first. What I do know is that I was taken out of both films screaming in tears because I was so upset and I had begun at the age of four to identify with the dog or with the page boys <laughs> in Henry V so intensely that I couldn't stand it. And, and you know, I guess that for, is a record, an imprint for me of um, how powerful the movies were for me straight away at the beginning. And it became sort of legend in my family that, it, that if, if someone was looking after me, uh, take him to a movie. It doesn't matter what the movie is. <laughs> <laughs> now, were your parents big moviegoers? I think they were regular moviegoers. Mm -hmm. I don't think they were uh, unusually devoted. Obviously, they took me to my first movies, and yeah. then other members of the family came in. Um, no, I, d I, I think my father was an amateur actor, mm -hmm. and he liked acting, and I think he was drawn to that side of movies. But no, they were not. They had no... Uh, working interest in movies of any kind at all. But, you know, the thing is, we're talking about 1945, because mm -hmm. I'm very old. Um, <laughs> everybody went to the movies yeah. then. Amazing concentration. It was the popular entertainment. Radio was there, and radio was very important for me, too, growing up. But in the United States, just after the war... Uh, they would sell 100 million tickets a week when the population was about 150 million. Now, that's staggering by today's standards, yeah. you know. Uh, and, and we've never regained that kind of audience concentration. But it wasn't just escapism after the war. It wasn't, it was more than that. And I like to think of it as, and this is some of what you touch on in the book here, but I like to think of it as being wired into our DNA. It the, this I, idea of, uh, of sitting with strangers and watching and sharing an experience. You got it. Uh, my sense, my memory of the movies is being in a packed theater. Mm -hmm. I never sat in an unpacked theater, if you know what I mean. Right. And these were big theaters. Yeah. The theaters in the, the suburb of London, where I lived, I think they were 2,000 seaters. Mm -hmm. So th we're talking about a big crowd, and you would go in, and you would sit among strangers. And when they laughed, or when they were excited or frightened, it was a communal experience. It was before I went to sports events, big sports events, and my father was much more interested in those. Right. It was the big demonstration of community that I had. I, I was taken to church a couple of times in my life, and I thought, it, compared with the movies, it was a miserable, lackluster place <laughs> because there weren't many people, and they weren't really very excited yeah. about being there. A little you know. more dire and, than movies. And the decor was not nearly as good as it was in the movies. 
<laughs> when was there a moment that you realized that your reaction to a film that you're watching projected on the screen was intellectual rather than just emotional? Well, you, you beg a question there. Uh, I, I don't think the separation of intellectual and emotional is that secure and definite. I think the two mix together a right. lot. I think every time we have a deep emotional feeling, we're thinking about it. We only know we're having it because our brain's telling us. Right. But anyway, to address your question, I was, I was simply a helpless automatic moviegoer, and I got more and more interested in movies. And in my teens, I went to the library, and I looked for books about film, mm -hmm. and there were very, very few. But I read a couple, and they both said, there is this film, Citizen Kane, that... Yeah is just extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, in those days, you couldn't see old movies. The only things that played in movie theaters were new movies. Yeah. So I thought, well, how do I get to see it? And I waited. And eventually, a small repertory theater in South London, near to where I lived, announced they were going to play Citizen Kane. Well, I assumed the world was waiting for the return of Citizen <laughs> Kane. So I got there very early to be sure of getting in because in those days you didn't always get into a movie. Right. I was the only person there. And the first time I saw Citizen Kane, and it is, it is the only way to see it for a first time, yeah. I was alone. It was <laughs> as if I was Kane, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and the theater was my Xanadu. And it was the first film I had seen that I simply couldn't follow. Right. It was so complicated in its structure, I didn't know what was happening. And I knew, as I was watching it, I remember sort of saying to myself, I've got to see this again. Now, I had never said that. I was in that pattern of behavior, mm -hmm. which everybody was in, which was that you saw a movie once. Yeah. Once you knew the story, no point in seeing it again. With Kane, I realized that things were happening that was so complicated, but so seductive to me that I had to see it again. So it was the whole principle that there, are, there can be, there isn't always, that there can be something so worthwhile in a film that you're going to have to go back. And I guess that's where I started to think about what was happening. And I think probably looking back on it, it was the moment, and I would have been, I think, 15, was the moment where I sort of half decided, half knew that I, when people said, what are you going to do when you grow up? It was going to be something to do with film. I thought at first I'd make films, and I tried, but, but it was going to have to be something to do with film. My guest in studio is David Thompson. His book, How to Watch a Movie, is uh, in stores right now. Uh, this is your 30th book, I think, or somewhere in and around there. Somewhere there's a, there's a lot of books. Yeah, too, a lot of books about too many, film. Too many. And so we're, we've, <laughs> we've just left it off where you've seen Citizen Kane. Yeah first movie that you had to see for a second time or thought that I, I, yeah. I need to digest this in a different sort of way. Exactly. That is something that seems to be gone now again. We seem to have reverted back to a moment where you see something once, maybe you'll get it on DVD and have another look at it later yes. or you'll watch it with the family, you know, at a, at a different time. But people don't go back and see movies over and over again like they used to. I guess that's true. Yeah, I, I mean, so much has changed. Um, I was 15, let's say, when I saw it, and I was I was studying at school. I went to a very good school. I was very lucky to go to Oxford, and I was going to read history, 
And um, I got a place in Oxford and it was all set. And I just woke up one morning and knew I didn't quite want to stay in what I called education any right. longer. And I had seen an advertisement in a film magazine for a place called the London School of Film Technique. It was the only film school in England. This is 1960. You could not study film at a single British university in those days. And I decided I was not going to go to Oxford. I was going to go to this film school. And my teachers at school were outraged. Well, I'm sure your parents were outraged a they little were, bit as well. They, they were very upset. Yeah. 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 So it, it was a big decision. And it was, it was probably the first stupid, stubborn thing I did. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, you say, I've devoted my life to the movies. And I almost began to think of myself as a screen character. My first marriage came apart because of it. When you believe in something that passionately, it can take you over. And it seems like it took you over at no, a young age. No question. Yeah. No question. And that that part of us that fantasizes over movies, and of course movies are a, movies are a machine mm -hmm. for fantasy, you know. And... It's enormous fun, and I think it can be very enriching, but it can be damaging because to the extent that movies are a dream, you can think you're living in a dream, mm -hmm. and uh, that that screwed my life up a bit, no question about it. Yeah. And from from those moments, so you, you go to the London School of Film. Film technique. Film technique. That's what they call Film it. Film technique. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and was it as though someone had opened all the windows in the house and a... Cool breeze came through for the first time. It was it was uh, it was very complicated. The school was terrible. The school was a racket, in right. fact, uh. and um, it it was very short of equipment and and things like that. But it had an international student body, and you know it was the first time I met seriously an American, right. uh, people from Asia, people from all over. And that part of it was wonderful. And they were older than I was by a few years. Mm -hmm. They were they were sort of by their own standards, they were they were graduate students. And I was a sort of freshman in college in terms of age. So that was very exciting. Um, and there was some equipment and we started to make films. And I got in with a gang of kids, not kids, they were young people, who absolutely behaved in a way the film industry would approve of. In a situation where there was a great shortage of equipment, they hijacked the equipment <laughs> so that they could always make a movie. And I was part of that group. And, you know, they, there were people in that group who were very good camera people, mm -hmm. very good editors, very good on sound, techniques, technologies that I was, I was no good at. But the one thing I could do for the group was think of a story to film. They would sit around and say, well, Walt, what should we make a film about today? And I could quickly come up with something. So I became the sort of screenwriter of the group. <laughs> and it was the first thing that really set me off thinking I might be a writer. David Thompson, a lot of fun to talk to. Interesting guy, and you could just see, as I was talking to him, I could see the wheels turning in there. Fiercely smart guy. Well, that's it, though. That's all the time we have. We have to put the Christmas tree away, take all the tinsel down, and get the champagne chilling for our New Year's Eve celebration around here at the House of Krauss. So it's time for all of you guys to leave. Get out of here. Uh, be sure to come back, though, 
next Monday. There'll be a new show up next Monday. There's one up every week. And, uh, you know, we have cool people like Adam McKay and David Thompson coming by. But really, you never know who's going to stop by for a visit. So be sure to come back and visit us again soon.